When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, I'm Grant Wall, and welcome to the Planet Football Podcast, where I go in-depth with the most intriguing people in the world of soccer. In this episode, I'm joined by MLS Commissioner Don Garber, who just extended his contract through the end of 2023. Just a quick reminder, it's a huge help if you subscribe to, rate, and review the podcast. It helps people find us. Onward! The 24th season of Major League Soccer begins on March 2nd, and our guest today is the MLS Commissioner, Don Garber. Don, great to have you here in studio. It's good to be here, Grant. I always look forward to these conversations. (laughs) It seems like we do about once a year. Me too, until I say something that I regret (laughs) saying. (laughs) We'll try and get you in that direction again here. Um, Lots to talk about, but first off, we had some news last week uh, that you had extended your contract with MLS through the 2023 season. You've been in this job now since 1999, which is pretty impressive. Um, Is this your last contract with the league? Well, hey, five years is a long time, Grant, so I'll I'll worry about that uh, several years in. But uh, it is a long time, and there's been a lot of growth, some trauma in the early days. And frankly, I think we are as a league further along than I ever thought we would be with lots of teams all connected in the community, lots of stadiums, lots of respect for our product, lots of, of uh, league of choice benefits that, uh, that have taken a long time to, to be able to uh, achieve as a league. Uh, but I'm I'm happy to uh, to be back at it for a while. It's the longest contract I've ever had in all my years as commissioner, which is interesting. Get through a CBA, get through uh, a new television contract, and mm-hmm. then we'll see. Yeah, we'll be talking about those things here on this podcast. I'm just curious, though, for right now, will you be grooming someone to become your successor? Well, I think succession is a uh, important part of any. Uh, uh, effective corporate governance grant. So uh, I've got a lot of key folks that work closely with me on the commercial side and Gary Stevenson on the sporting side with Mark Abbott and and Todd Durbin. Uh, And we continue to think about, you know, how do we all grow together as we've all been around for a while. There's a unique dynamic in MLS in that most of the key people have been around for a long time. Dan Cordemont sitting next to us 20 years or so uh, into the job. Uh, I've been spending a lot of time thinking about ownership succession. If you think about some of the new owners that have come into the league, a generation or so younger than the founders, you know, who were the sports industrialists that created the league. Uh, So I spent a lot of time thinking about it. I've got an ownership committee that is assisting me on that. And at the right time, we'll be able to effectively figure out proper trans transition and succession. I think David Stern did a good job at it. Paul Tagliabue did a good job at it. Uh, uh, Bud Selig did a good job at it. So I hope after um, in 2023, I'll be in the job 25 years, which is kind of crazy. Uh, it's going to be uh, important that somebody else at the right time is going to be able to be uh, able to lead the league into you know, a new generation of growth. So we're here in New York right now, but you literally just a few hours ago got off a flight from 
was it somewhere in Mexico? Mexico, yeah. Um, where you had a pretty important two-day meeting uh, with other MLS stakeholders. Could you fill me in a little bit about what that was and what you discussed? Sure. I think, you know, what, what, what I always like talking to you about, Grant, I mean, you know so much about our league. You've been covering it for a long time. You know a lot of our owners. You know a lot of our staff. Most fans don't understand that decisions are not made by some monolithic you know, structure with a king sitting at the top of the pyramid and granting edicts as to how the league is going to operate or even how decisions are uh, uh, ultimately made. We have a very, very formal committee structure that comes out of a governance product, uh, uh, project. Uh, I was last Monday with Hank Paulson and Cliff Illig, Sporting Kansas City and Portland Timbers, who had co-chair our governance committee talking about committees. And one of those key committees is our product strategy committee. It's made up of a handful of owners representing big markets, small markets, uh, experienced and some, some new owners. We had a new member, uh, Larry Berg, who uh, is the, uh, the managing partner for LAFC, just joined that committee. And we sit down and we talk about how do we make the league better? How do we put initiatives together like TAM, which came out of the product strategy process? Uh, how do we think about our schedule? What are we going to do to ensure that we're effectively investing in player development? Do we think differently about homegrown territories? How do we incentivize teams to be thinking about the bottom of their roster from an age perspective as well as the top of the roster? And we dig in to a 300-page deck that Todd Durbin, who's been running uh, our, our competition group for 20 years, he and uh, a bunch of his staff, all people that are from the game, uh, Fred Lipka, who used to work in France at uh, Claire Fontaine. Uh, who uh, is our head of youth development. You know, we're all digging into issues and opportunities, and that's what we did for two days. Um, in terms of, are there any specific things you guys kicked around? Well, what, what would an interview with there? Grant be without some breaking news? Why not? I've been there, done that, pal. So, <laughs> no, th these are strategy meetings. Yeah. So there's no, there's no decisions that come out of that. And, and we even spent some time talking about, you know, what would the League of the Future look like in 10 or 20 years? And we, we put time aside to be able to talk about that. What would I, and, and the commissioner in all leagues, by the way, but in Major League Soccer, the commissioner gets to uh, select committee members so that you can ensure that you're having productive debate and you're having uh, the right uh, decisions that are coming out of, uh, of those offsite planning meetings. Clark Hunt is the chairman of that committee, co-chaired with Greg Kerfoot, both guys that have been involved in the game for a long period of time. You know, we, we, we don't make decisions per se, but we work on uh, ensuring that we're addressing all of the issues and opportunities and challenges that, uh, that we have. Years ago, it was about salary budgets, but now it's about how do we continue to grow uh, our influence? How do we ensure that we're developing players properly? How do we have the right dynamics in our rosters to ensure that those, uh, the product on the field is delivering value for our broadcast partners and for our fans? How do we, how do we ensure that we're investing effectively uh, and, and uh, putting uh, uh, initiatives in place that may not de deliver in the next two months, but might deliver in the next two to five years? Expansion has been such a big storyline for this league for many years now in terms of the league being bigger. There's going to be 24 teams this year with Cincinnati joining. You've committed now to 27 teams. Before I ask you about like where you're going next, I'd be curious to know just what the impact has been 
of expansion, you literally have more owners than you used to who have different backgrounds. How has that influenced how you do your job and what you're doing as a league? You know, I'll take a step back, Grant. I, uh, when I came into the league in 99, I could remember Lamar and Robert Kraft and uh, Stuart Sabotnik. If you remember, he was the original owner of the Metro Stars with John Kluge. They said, you know, we have uh, 12 teams We're not, and, and the league is operating three of them. Imagine that, Mark Abbott going from one side of his desk to another and making trades, right? Because we didn't have enough owners to actually even operate the teams that we had. And they said, you got to fix all that. You got to find a way that you could come up with a plan to ensure that we're not going to continue to lose the amount of money that we've been investing over the previous three. And you need to find a way that you can grow the league. And it was not, and I came in in 99, it wasn't until 2005 after contracting that we brought in Salt Lake and Chivas USA. And that Chivas project did not work out so well, as you know. So expanding the league isn't just about more teams. It's about ensuring that you are growing the overall enterprise, that you have more jobs for players, you have more creating an industry of general managers and team presidents and getting new owners that could sit around and have diversity of thought. And as I think about where we are now, so many years after you know, the 10 teams that we ended up with in 2001 is, uh, you know, we've created a soccer nation. You know, Dan Flynn, just at the recent AGM, this U.S. soccer meeting, was talking about the importance of Major League Soccer, growing the supporter culture and building a fan dynamic and having people that really care deeply about their clubs and clubs that really de- care deeply about their community. And each team does that in their own markets. And that's what's grown where, what, what the country and Canada have become today. So as I think about what that's like around a boardroom, we have 42 members of our board. It's a whole lot easier sitting around with three guys with Phil Anschutz owning a good number of those Six teams. Of them, for <laughs> and then uh, have that pressure of somebody who is in a small market and has small market pressures but has invested a lot of money, large markets, some of them that have uh, really punched way above their weight and continue to do really well, some of them that have legacy issues. And as we think about that in a boardroom, the, the role of the commissioner really has changed dramatically because you're now having to, to address a diverse set of issues that ultimately have to come together to be able to have initiatives that you know fans can see an improved uh, experience for themselves in their stadiums or watching it on some of our media partners. So I spent time with Arthur Blank the week that Atlanta won the title uh, in December uh, and just came away really impressed by him and his commitment to the league and his ambition, which is a word you hear me say a fair amount in connection with MLS. Um, And obviously just the scene around 73,000, 72,000 people there for that final all standing for the entire time. It was incredible. Um, How do you persuade other owners in this league to be as ambitious as Arthur Blank? I'd say the vast majority of our owners have the same exact ambition. Greg. No, they don't. No, they, they really do. They just can, it, it's delivered in different ways. So nobody is going to tell me that a market that has fewer fans and is um, uh, Kansas City, a small market, Cliff Illigs and, and, and Peter Vermees' ambition 
is identical to that of Arthur's. Now, what's happened in Arthur's is a confluence of a number of incredibly uh, powerful things that have all come together that have created something for all of us. And I'm not just saying this as the commissioner. All of our owners look at it and say, you know, this is an example of when it all works, of what really could happen that could drive energy and can drive uh, a brand for Major League Soccer that's really reverberating around the world. Now, not every owner is able to deliver that. Not every owner is selling 55,000 seats. That itself is creating a unique dynamic we've never had to deal with before. Their revenue model is different. Uh, they've proven the, the point of investing in players like Almiron and being able to deliver an enormous profit on that. Uh, that's not happened before. Now, that look at, what, what, look at what's happened around the league, and you start hearing rumors of other players that are rumored to be coming into the league at eight and 10 and $12 million uh, purchase prices. Now somebody has to prove the point. Phil Anschutz proved the point with what would happen by bringing David Beckham in and Lamar Hunt proved the point by building the first soccer-specific stadium. I look at Ambition and LAFC, another brand new team came in in and around the same time last year. And those guys have you know, more than a half a billion dollars invested in Major League Soccer. My concern is not with those you know. new teams. My concern is with some of the original 96 teams from 1996 where, and I wrote this column recently, so I'll be specific, like the two owners of the Super Bowl team, Stan Kroenke and the Kraft, are not at the top of my ambition rankings for MLS. They're at the bottom. Right. <laughs> and so my question to you is, are these guys watching what Atlanta's doing? Is it having an impact on them? And how much do you as a commissioner, I, I'm sure you're treading a fine line, but like, how much do you say to them? Come on, guys. Well, you know, come on, guys is not going to change, you know, their uh, their their perspective, <laughs> right? So, okay. and, and, and I'll, I'll talk more broadly. You know, every, every market has got its own uh, legacy market. It's got its own issues as it relates to sort of what the model was then, Grant, and what our thought was then, and what our strategy was then, and what basically a new owner could take advantage of, because all of those guys invested for nearly 20 years to, to build the opportunity, right? Now, Arthur Blank was not an original owner, and I would venture to say if he came in in 1996, I'm not quite sure we'd have the Atlanta United that we have today. And, uh, and, and Arthur, I, I love him, and he is just a, a very close friend of mine and somebody that I think will go down in history as one of the most important people in the history of this sport because he showed everybody what it could be in a market that most people in pro sports didn't have a lot of faith in. Agreed now, me. by the way, it took us 10 years to get to that point. Most people don't realize that Arthur and I was speaking 10 years before that team was launched. And I think when he wanted to come in 10 years ago, I'm not sure that it was the right time. Uh, and, you know, everything aligned and, and we have something that is absolutely special. Uh, when you look at those legacy markets, they I'll just use New England as an example. Uh, the model at that time was to play in football stadiums. And we were playing in the Rose Bowl, and we were playing in uh, the, at Ohio State, and we were playing in all these giant stadiums. We were playing in Soldier Field. And then we ended up uh, going into a stadium that is not downtown, does not have the things around it that many of our other urban parks do. 
And, uh, you know, if things could work out properly, maybe we end up back in Soldier Field at some point. Yeah. But uh, the question is, if we had remained there and never left, uh, I'm not quite sure Major League Soccer would exist today. Mm. So I think when, when the benefit of being at it for 20 years is you get to see sort of all the ebbs and flows and all the strategy changes. And we'll talk a little bit about research yeah. and how you make decisions based on uh, market data and what fans are looking for and what and how markets change and shift uh, over time. Uh, I am absolutely convinced if the New England Revolution are able to finally close a deal and get a downtown stadium, everybody's going to be looking at what's going on there and saying, oh my, what an unbelievable phenomenon. You know, how do we now get a half a billion dollar stadium in, you know, midtown Manhattan or a half a billion dollar stadium in downtown Denver? So when's that happening, by the way? The New England? I mean, I, I continue to believe and I continue to say uh, that in both Boston and in New York City, those owners are deeply focused on trying to get deals done so that they can get their urban soccer stadiums completed. But having gone through now 20 soccer stadium projects with four or five more coming over the next four or five years, it is really, really, really hard to do it in big cities. Limited land, lots and lots of political issues. Look at what just happened in our city here in New York where one company was looking to deliver 25,000 jobs and uh, and ultimately they're not going to be delivering those jobs and Amazon's going to go someplace else. So it's complicated in these big cities. Took us 20 years, not 20, but near that to get a stadium done in D.C. Yeah. And now everybody forgets how hard and how long it was. And it took us 10 years to finalize our Miami project and we're going to have a great facility uh, facility project there. So... I, I do believe that fans should not be patient. That's not their job. But my job and our owner's job is to be smart and thoughtful and ensure we're making the right decisions at the right time. In terms of expansion specifics, uh, you're going to get to 28. You've announced that. Uh, how soon are we looking at that timeline, like an announcement this year? And in December, you, for the first time, said publicly that you're looking at beyond 28. How many are we talking about? I don't know. Grant, so, you know, that's that's what, talk about committees again, we have an expansion committee, Jonathan Kraft chairs that committee, we're going to get together in April and we're going to talk through, you know, how big should this league get, uh, what impact does that have on a wide variety of things, our schedule and, and all the other things that go into having to manage a larger footprint. Uh, we don't have a specific timetable on when teams 28 uh, will, team 28 will be picked, you know, we've got a a lot of teams that are going to be onboarded over the next couple of years. We've got a very unique situation, as you know, we'll probably talk about in, in Columbus and then a potential, not potential, but a team that will launch in a couple of years in Austin. So a lot of work needs to be done. But we've been pretty uh, strategic and knocking on wood here that your uh, uh, people, listeners might not be able to hear, but we got to continue to be thoughtful about this so that we can um, – get it right, and continue to benefit from uh, careful and strategic expansion. Just about everybody I talked to thinks St. Louis is going to get 28. Why do they think that? Uh, because they're come, they have come in with a lot of money behind it. Things are different than it was a couple of years ago when they didn't get their vote. And they are 
hot to get a team. Yeah, well, listen, there there are a lot of cities hot to get a team, right? Sacramento is as hot, and as you know, announced a new owner that uh, is going to join that group. Uh, I love the Taylor family. I love Jim Cavanaugh and what he's done. He's a true soccer guy running a USL team. By the way, a college soccer roommate at St. Louis University with Dan Flynn, hmm. you know, the CEO of U.S. Soccer. Uh, they've got a great bid, and we've been spending a lot of time with them. So that's kind of a yes? No. It's okay. kind of like <laughs> we really like them. <laughs> no, not a yes. <laughs> um, I want to talk about some of the research you guys have done since 2015, uh, which you're kind of making public for the first time right now is my sense. Some of it's been public before, but not all of it. And I was taking a look at some of this stuff, which I think our listeners here will find interesting. I'm going to highlight a couple of things. So you guys hired the Boston Consulting Group, the league did uh, back in 2015. And you're saying that they identified two key market segments among soccer fans in the US and Canada for MLS to target. One of those is what are called soccer enthusiasts, which are highly engaged, passionate soccer fans. Soccer is their primary sport. League soccer fans. Invested in their local team. Uh, And then another group called sports fans, uh, heavy consumers of, uh, let's see, as heavy consumers of sport, these fans follow multiple sports and leagues. Soccer is not their primary sport, but when they watch soccer, they seek connection and belonging with others through exciting competitive games and a social experience. Um, it notes here, while soccer enthusiasts and sports fans, these two groups make up 32% of soccer fans in North America, these two segments consume 66% of the soccer content in the U.S. and Canada. What MLS found extremely interesting, I'm quoting here, was that research from both Boston Consulting and Scarborough stated that less than 2% of the soccer fan market in the U.S. and Canada considered themselves, quote, soccer purists. Soccer purists are high consumers of soccer, Soccer is their primary sport, seeking to watch the most elite, highest quality, and most competitive soccer available. They don't care about a local club and prefer international soccer over MLS. Uh, Other key findings, and I appreciate you letting me talk for this long. Uh, Name brand players are less important than play quality. Fancy quality over big names. Fancy quality over domestic players. In other words, the name on the back of the jersey or the country where the player was from was not that important. So let's... Stop there. With the, the one thing added here, since 2015, more than $600 million has been invested in designated players and players secured with targeted allocation money. There's a lot to digest there, but this is interesting to me, this idea that 2%, less than 2% of the soccer fan market considered themselves a soccer purist. Right. What do you take out of that? So, Grant, let me, and I'll, I'll give you sort of top line and then dig into what it all means. Top line is uh, we're in a global market and the other leagues aren't. So the NBA doesn't have to do research on its player pool, right? It might have to research issues that fans have with things that might be happening among their player pool and, and, and uh, you know, are teams tanking or are they, is there parity issues? But they are the market, but we're not. Right, so we are part of a global market. Neither is the in England. Are they the market? You know, we're all part of a global dynamic. We're part of a global dynamic in the transfer market and all the changes that have been going on uh, over the last ye- couple of years in terms of our thinking. There, the most important aspect of this is that we need to be thinking about how do we grow our fan base. 
How do we get more people that are soccer fans to be th fans of their local MLS team? What is it that they perceive about their current, their current MLS product? And what do they want to see more of? And basically what they've told us is they want to see uh, us measured referentially against Mexico, for example, uh, rather than having uh, uh, a, a fan determine that the increase in quality is by how many goals are scored, even though we had a record, the highest scoring uh, league of all the leagues last year, completed passes, right? They're not really thinking about that. They basically want to know that the league is better compared to some reference point. And in order to know that, we needed to understand how big the market was so that when we get into a product strategy meeting, we're not just having people yell at each other. We're trying to say, what do we need to do to take what a share of X percent and grow it? That's where TAM came out of. They, the fans are basically saying, we need you to be better. And how do, could we get better? Well, we needed to go out and sign a bunch of players that would improve the middle of our rosters so that it wasn't just about having two or three designated players. It was about having players that could round out Fans have said this for a long time. Round out uh, the roster so that the overall quality improves. And that's what our investment philosophy is. TAM came out of this research as opposed to us just saying, let's spend more money. Well, right. on what? Right? Are you going to pay the existing players more money? Are you going to go out and sign more designated players? How old should those players be? What country should they come from? And all of that now has data, no different than any other company, that's helping to inform our decisions. It is the most important thing, I believe, that we've done in the history of the league because we now are able to make decisions based on fan needs. Your question on the soccer purist, that is that fan that will never like us, right? That person will say, you're, ne you're not good enough, right? They are an infinitesimal size of the uh, percentage of the 80 million soccer fans in our country. They are the loudest. They are primarily the media <laughs> who fuels that fire. Right? They're the ones that are engaging amongst themselves, huh. that care about things that ultimately the broader fan base does not care about. And we are careful not to overreact to that because they're not our fans anyway. Right? They're going to be watching whatever they're going to watch, and they're not going to be going to a game in Los Angeles or in Kansas City or in Portland and ultimately engage as a, as a core supporter. In Seattle, they'd rather have a good MLS match than have some international match. They'd rather have a good MLS match than have a national team match. And that's just evidenced by their, their voting with their wallet and they're voting with their eyes because of television ratings and, and attendance. Yeah, it's it's interesting to me. I guess the, the question I would then ask is, like, you certainly hear in some parts of MLS, why can't we just have a salary cap and not worry about TAM or designated players? Just give us a number that we is higher than what we've had before that we can hit for our roster. Why not that? Because today, the strategic investment in our player pool broadly gets with it. I'm thinking about this broadly, not individual team, but broadly needs to be more competitive on an aggregate basis with Mexico, for example, beating the Mexicans in the Champions League. It needs to look like a product that others who are seeing a game in the Premier League or watching a Serie A game, believing that that product is of quality that could be equal to. Uh, we need to be strategic in how we spend money. It is the basis by how MLS was founded so that our overall league is, is engaging a larger percentage of the fan base. 
because ultimately, Grant, when you're a team person, you care about beating your opponent. You're really not caring as much about whether the league's audience, whether our television ratings are growing, whether our commercial business is growing, whether our consumer products business is growing. I understand that a general manager for a local club's job, he's hired to finding whether he wins on Saturday, not whether or not Major League Soccer has a 10% or a 15% increase in its television ratings. Um, we would have too much more time left, but there's a couple of things I want to hit. Um, one of them being collective bargaining. This is the last year of the collective bargaining agreement uh, between the league and the players. Um, things seem to be going well lately with the league in terms of expansion, in terms of a lot of positives. Um, how is that going to impact, do you think, what the players want? And how reasonable is it to think that the players will presumably want a pretty significant increase in the salary cap? Well, you know, the, the good news here is we've got a very good relationship with our union, uh, with the union leadership, John Newman and Bob Foos, and an expanding staff there. Uh, and I believe we have a good relationship with our player pool. Uh, when we meet with our players, they understand the, the overall uh, direction of the league and what our opportunity is and what our challenges are. As we continue to invest more in facilities, invest more in our player pool, invest more in our academies, our aggregate losses continue to grow. I say this whenever I'm asked this question. It's not trying to uh, create any leverage in the discussion. It's a fact. Do you have to play poorhouse on, right. on me again here? So what we need to do is ensure, as, I would, as I've said to them and I've said publicly for so many years now, Grant, that we're very strategic about how we go forward in all of the different investments we need to make, including our investment in, in our CBA. Uh, should we be improving charter travel? And if you had a dollar to spend, are you going to spend it on uh, on things like that or spend it on expanding the salary cap? Where does strategic investment like allocation, targeted allocation money fit in? What should we do with the designated player rule, which was created based on research back in 2006, saying then that our fans wanted to see more international players in our league of big names? And then after we did that, 10, 12 years later, they said, well, great. We don't really need to see that anymore. So is that really changing? It's not changing, but the, yeah. the, the focus on the designated player rule changed 180 degrees. The research done in 06 said, if you want to grow your fan base, you need to get me some of these players that I see in the World Cup that I'm seeing playing on in Premier League matches, wherever they might be, and we want to see the big names. So what do we do? We signed Beckham, we signed Henri, we signed Marquez. He signed a bunch of big name players, Lampard and Gerrard, some successful, some not. And then as the market got more sophisticated, as they started connecting with their clubs, they said, we don't really care about the big names. We want to see players that are going to make a difference, difference makers. And we want to see them younger. So what do we do? We sign younger players. And it's the strategy behind that that comes from the top down that our product strategy committee is working on collectively to ensure that we have the, the, the player pool that we have today. So I'm confident we'll, we'll have effective and difficult, I'm sure, discussions with our players union. I have faith in our players. I have faith in their leadership. These things are never fun. They're never easy. Uh, but we'll collectively work hard to be able to get an agreement that everybody feels good about. I want to ask you about Columbus because sitting here with you about a year ago, this was a pretty big black cloud hanging over things. Um, and it's in a different place now. Uh, one that I didn't expect that not many people expected. 
would happen this way. I thought Columbus was, I thought the crew was out of Columbus. Did you? Uh, no, I didn't. And uh, I knew that that was a distinct possibility. And again, Grant, I think at times when guys like me talk, not everybody hears because they form their opinions based on their judgment as to what and how, what decisions are made and how those decisions are made. And that's fans, right? It's social media driving that. And in many cases, it's the influential media, not all media, uh, but it's the ones that are influencing debate. And, and I'm, as you know, a guy that comes from the media space. I believe in that, right? Kind of keeps everybody focused and honest. Uh, we said from the very beginning, we we're going to have a parallel path. And everybody sort of dismissed it. There was a parallel path. We never, ever, ever took our eye off while we were looking at, uh, Anthony Precourt was looking at what he potentially could do in Austin. What did the league need to do to ensure that we had a uh, effective solution in Columbus? And that required three things from the very beginning. We needed a new owner, preferably a local one. We needed a stadium project because the current one, uh, Cruise Stadium, was not working and was our first stadium and was dated and needed to be addressed. And we needed to have a, an engaged fan base because low attendance and, and low corporate, it was not because anybody did anything wrong. There was just a confluence of a, lot, a bunch of things that were not working. And here we are today. We have a, a, a local owner with Pete Edwards partnering with the Haslam family who really is committed to Ohio and, and, and going to be fabulous owners. We have a, a city that was dismissive of the league for many years, coming together with us, and really just, it, it's a remarkable uh, uh, dynamic where the Columbus Partnership and the mayor got together and said, we don't want to lose the crew, and got a, a piece of land, got public funding for that land, bravely and courageously and quickly put that all together, and then look at their fan base, have record season ticket uh, uh, sales. Uh, and it all had to happen in about two months, right? So we said early on, you needed, we needed to run the table here. We needed to get this done quickly. We needed to get the stadium deal done. We needed to get the city behind it. We needed to find a new owner. We need to figure out how that would impact expansion. We needed to get the Austin team to have a couple of years to get their stadium project up and going and get that owner to agree to that because he had certain rights. And, uh, and here we are today. At least the table is set for a new beginning in Columbus and a more effective launch of a new team in Austin. Do you get as fired up for a new season now as you did 20 years ago? Uh, you know, the real answer is, of course, Grant. <laughs> you know, it's hard for me to imagine that this is year 20. Yeah. Uh, and I, I was with uh, Adrian Hanauer uh, the last couple of days to think that the, the Seattle team's 10 years old. Uh, and, uh, you know, to think that, uh, you know, Atlanta's going into year three. You know, there, there are so many things that sort of happened in the past that you lose sight of how monumental they were at the time because we have so many new things happening. You know, we're going to have a brand new stadium in Minnesota that is going to just transform uh, the, I think, the market for soccer stadiums in our country. It's, it's gorgeous. It's beautiful. So you have an unbelievable uh, new team coming in. We have a new team coming in in Cincinnati that we weren't even thinking about two and a half years ago. So I am, I'm pretty excited about being in Nashville tomorrow for their, their brand launch. Uh, I'm very excited for, for this year, for sure. Well, we're heading right now to do a video interview with different questions than these. Um, and I'll, 
encourage people to check that out as well. Don Garber, thanks for coming to the studio. Thanks, Grant. Always enjoy it. Thanks for listening to the Planet Football Podcast. I'd like to thank Don Garber as well as everyone at Cadence 13 and Sports Illustrated who supports this podcast. Just a quick reminder, it's a huge help if you subscribe to, rate, and review the podcast. It helps people find us. See you next time.